Hey everybody, you may not know this yet, and if you don't, prepare to be blown away. We are creating right now the first ever Stuff You Should Know book. It's called Stuff You Should Know, colon, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things, and you can pre-order it now. That's right, and if you pre-order everyone, there's an incentive because you get a free gift. And don't worry if you've already pre-ordered because you can just head on over to stuffyoushouldreadbooks.com very beautiful little web page and it's got all the information and if you already pre-ordered can't you just like upload your receipt and get that pre-order gift yep you can and they will mail it off to you and you will get it in the mail and you say oh thank you don't mind if i do and it's a poster that you will love and cherish and possibly pass on down to your children as an heirloom that's right everyone we couldn't be more excited about this book it's really coming together well it's us through and through and you can go check out some excerpts at stuff you should read books.com Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know, polio cast. That's right. Uh, before we get going, though, we want to tell everyone that we have a book coming out called Stuff You Should Know, colon, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things. Mm-hmm. That you can buy and pre-order online, and uh, pre-orders are very—it's um, a very big deal to pre-order the book. It's—I never knew what a big deal it was, but pre-orders are very important for the author. Are they? I didn't realize they're a big out. deal. Now I'm kind of worried. No, they're a big deal. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yeah, I guess if everybody will go—you won't regret pre-ordering the book. How about that? And why? Because you get a special gift. Not only that, you get a special gift for sure. You just go upload your receipt at stuffyoushouldreadbooks.com. But also the book itself is really great too. I think you're going to like it. 26 full robust chapters that are going to just knock your socks off and it's 100% stuff you should know. That's right. And we got great illustrations by Carly Minardo. Mm -hmm. We had a great uh, writer working with us named Nils Parker. Yep. And a great uh, publisher in Flatiron, and we're just super excited about it, and we appreciate your support. Yep. So you can go pre-order that book everywhere. Okay. Um, wow, Chuck, we're getting really good at that. Now let's talk polio. <laughs> so well, we're not good at it's transitioning. <laughs> no, we're not. We never have been. No. Um, so polio. Uh, I, I when I was researching this, I kept running across uh, whenever I typed in polio. You know that auto suggest in the search bar. Um, it would say things like, does polio still exist? And mm-hmm. it absolutely does. But it's one of those diseases that we're really, really close to eradicating thanks to a, a, an extraordinarily robust vaccination campaign. Um, one of the first really big vaccination campaigns um, in the history of the world. And it was also one of the most successful, too. So much For so sure. that, that we're down to just three countries. I believe Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria are the only three countries where polio is still endemic, where, like, you can just walk around and catch polio. Um, uh, and there are br- outbreaks in other countries. We'll talk about exactly why. But it went from this global worldwide problem at the beginning of the 20th century down to three countries. And we're, like, that close to, to getting rid of it forever from the planet, right. basically. Yeah, so, um, and it's interesting to, to read about polio and its vaccine during the middle of our own pandemic with coronavirus and COVID-19, because uh, there's, there's a lot of similarities and overlap. It's interesting. There's a pandemic um, on? 
<laughs> That's why I haven't seen you in three months. I know. Are you getting used to it yet? I mean, sure, just as anyone gets used to something that stinks. Oh, thank you. I didn't mean not seeing you. I mean everything, but sure, that's oh, a part okay, of that. gotcha. <laughs> it's for sure a part of that. But it is um, weird talking about it, for sure, because there are some, some real similarities, for sure. Yeah, so uh, polio is the disease, uh, but polio virus is the enterovirus, which is a virus of the intestinal tract, mm-hmm. uh, which is an RNA virus like COVID-19. Um, but the disease itself, like COVID, is the sickness. Uh, polio is the disease as coronavirus is the polio virus. I mix that all up, but I think it's right. So coronavirus is to COVID what polio virus is to polio. Yeah, that's the cleaner way to say it. Right, and then apparently polio specifically, if you say, um, oh, this person, my grandfather had polio, um, you're not talking about just a polio infection. There's a specific kind of disease that you can get from the polio virus where it attacks your central nervous system and can cause all sorts of problems. And that specifically is what somebody's saying when they say they had polio, which is in that case called poliomyelitis, which is what people are talking about when they say when they're talking about polio, the disease. Yeah, because a lot of people got the polio virus, mm-hmm. um, didn't know it, had no symptoms. Your body kicks into gear. <clears throat> that immune system just fights it off. You got those antibodies for life, and that's it. That happened a lot. Um, but, yeah, like you said, if you if you get polio, that means that it hits your, your central nervous system. And we'll get more into detail about all this. But um, polio virus is where it colonizes is in the throat and the digestive system. Right. And we're talking about uh, your feces being contaminated Mm -hmm. or infectious and contaminated and your saliva, uh, depending on how you get it. So there's basically two ways to pass it along, either with your poop or with your saliva. Um, and the, the fecal transmission is much more prevalent, especially in the um, developing world, <clears throat> because of poor sanitation. Yeah. And, like, if you look at just the natural history of the virus, of the polio virus, its, it's ideal is to just replicate, right? That's the whole purpose of a virus is just make as many copies of itself as possible. And so living in the, the water, um, the, the drinking water supply, and then infecting people— um, infecting their gut, replicating, being passed as feces uh, back into the water supply to infect other people, but without, you know, really developing symptoms in people, that's ideal for for the, uh, the virus itself. Um, every once in a while, though, I think in about one quarter of people who become infected, the, uh, the, po- the polio virus will enter the bloodstream. It'll leave the gut and enter the bloodstream and will produce what's called viremia, where um, it infects the blood, it starts to infect other organs, and those people will develop flu-like symptoms for a couple of days. That's that's still not that bad. Probably nothing we would have mounted a global eradication campaign against. It's just that in a very small proportion of people who become infected, the polio virus not only infects the bloodstream, it actually travels to the central nervous system and attacks that. And then that is the real problem that comes from polio, what we were talking about earlier, poliomyelitis. Yeah, and no one knows why that happens. Uh, No one knows... I mean, basically, they just think it's it is completely random. I mean, that's that seems to be the case 
of whether or not you get the paralytic version or not. Uh, it is not many people, but when you spread those numbers out, it can be a lot of people. So when you look at numbers like uh, 0.5% of everyone infected um, have paralysis, if you look at a human population, that's a lot of people. Right. Um, yeah. When, when, yeah. Just that very small percent of everybody or a ton of people around the world and for centuries have, you know, an infection, it, it does add up big time for sure. Enough so. And so not just the number also, Chuck, but just the, the devastating effects that um, polio can have, poliomyelitis yeah. can have on a person, it's um, it's a really bad jam because it not only can it cause what's called acute flaccid paralysis where your your motor neurons or your muscles are attacked so that you can't use your muscle and your, um, your limb starts to wither or maybe you just become fully paralyzed. It can also um, travel to your brain and affect things like your swallowing reflex or breathing. And so it can very, very easily kill you when it starts to to progress to the central nervous system phase of poliomyelitis. Yeah, and there's no treatment for polio. Um, And we'll talk about the vaccine here in a minute to uh, a great extent. But um, it's just like any other virus. You let it it run its course. Um, Your body will probably uh, do the right thing and step up and fight it back Mm -hmm. and not let it get to your bloodstream. But like you said, even if it gets to your bloodstream, you might just get sick. Um, But that 0.5% chance that you actually have the paralytic version, um, there is no cure for that. No, which is weird. I was like, so what, you're you're just a goner if you get poliomyelitis or that's what the case was? And apparently your body can still fight it off. You can get poliomyelitis. And if you receive the proper care, um, one of the one of the better um, inventions to combat polio is called the iron lung, which would breathe for you using a bellows and negative and positive pressure to move your chest up and down. Um, like that could keep you alive long yeah. enough to give you a chance for your body to fight off the infection with your immune system. But like that's not a cure. That's just keeping you alive long enough for your body to fight it off. Right. It was really surprising to me that there's still to this day no treatment for polio. Yeah, I can't help but think of the big Lebowski <laughs> when I think of iron lungs. Uh, who was in an iron lung in that? Remember when they go to visit the, uh, they think the kid um, stole the uh, car or, or they found it, the, they found the kid's schoolwork in the back of the car. Uh-huh. And they go to his house, and it was this this former uh, TV writer uh-huh. who who's inside, and he's in an iron lung. <laughs> I I genuinely don't remember that part. I'm yeah, sure I'm was, being shouted at by some of our listeners, but sorry. Okay. It was played for laughs. The one I think of is um, Ralph Macchio in The Outsiders after he gets burned from running in that house to save those what, people. Was he in an iron lung? That's what I thought, and so I looked it up to verify, and so. there's no mention of it. So I guess when I was a kid, I just made up that Ralph Macchio is in an iron lung in The Outsiders. If I'm uh, not mistaken, he was just had a, I guess what you would call a respirator today. Okay, but wasn't maybe he they were upside called respirators down? back then? Face? Yeah, I think he was. I think he was face down uh-huh. in traction and suspended and on a respirator. Uh-huh. I'm not mistaken. Well, my my tiny little impressionable brain translated that into an iron lung. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Stay gold. My brain hasn't gotten much better, Chuck. <laughs> sure it has. So, um, 
So you can survive, you can fend off a polio infection, even with poliomyelitis. But the problem is, is that it very frequently would, would not let you survive. Um, it would kill you. And so, like we said, just mounting this campaign became kind of paramount. But polio is tough because they think it's such an old virus. They think it's been around for a very, very long time. And that's kind of evidenced by the fact that Polio is, um, it's only humans that, that it lives in and tries to replicate. And there's, it's not like other viruses where there's like reservoir animals that it can, um, it can hang out in and, and, and just basically stay alive until it can infect a human. It's just humans, basically. Although there was a case in 1966 of some chimps becoming infected from humans uh, with polio. In that sense. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and if we need to, um, if you need to go over viruses again, folks, uh, look no further than the recent stuff you should know classic from March twentieth, uh, virus talk with Josh and Chuck. That was from March twentieth. The the re release. What do you, what do we call those classics? Oh, gotcha. Selects. Specials. Selects. Selects. <laughs> Aren't you like one half of this podcast? I am, but I call them classics in my brain. I don't know what the official branding is. Selects. Yeah. Like we have hand-selected this classic episode. Yeah, classics. I think if you, if you scramble the word selects, <laughs> classics is in there somewhere. But it's I think misspelled. So. But yeah, that one just came out recently, so that'll catch up on what a virus is. But should we take a break and talk a little bit about the ancient history, perhaps, of polio? Yes. All right, we'll be right back, everybody. Want to learn about a pterosaur and call it pterodactyl? How to take a perfect boob and all about fractals? Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, the Lizzie Borden murders and the cannibal runs. Don't explain everything to your brain. Explodes. It's Chuck and Josh. This stuff you should know. Word up, Jerry. All right, so ancient ancient history. Um, we don't know exactly where polio started because uh, old diseases have uh, shoddy record keeping. Sure, um, they just didn't keep up with stuff like they do now. But we do, you know, if you looked at some of the mummies in ancient Egypt, you might see some limb deformities that could have been polio. Yeah, uh, there are um, paintings on walls and things that. Maybe could be polio, but this is us extrapolating this from a modern lens. Um, they, you know, those limbs could have been smashed in a, you know, heavy object accident as well. You never know. A combine accident. <laughs> well, I was going to say that, but they didn't have combines. <laughs> so um, a barge accident. How about that? Okay. So, um, like, over the years, people were studying polio. And, I mean, we kind of started to get a pretty good handle on it. We didn't understand what viruses were, so we didn't know it was a virus until the 19th or 20th century. No, the 20th century. I think 1908, our old friend Carl Landsteiner, who developed um, blood types, was also the, the one of the two people who identified the polio virus in 1908. But other people had contributed up to that point. Like, it was recognized as um, being an epidemic disease, that there were outbreaks, that kind of stuff. And But everybody was kind of okay with polio existing. Like, it was not something that we were happy about, but nothing that, like, there was this great urgency to cure. 
until about the beginning of the 20th century. And they think that that people living together close mm-hmm. in close quarters, urbanization, and better sanitation led to polio outbreaks that hadn't been seen before because the better sanitation produced a, a population that had not been exposed to polio virus. Yeah, that seems counterintuitive. It does, but it makes sense because if you've got yeah. a virgin population, that thing can just hop from person to person to person. Whereas if you have an endemic population where the, any proportion of the population is already immune from having been exposed to the virus before. Because don't forget, remember, we said a lot of people, most people, I think 75% of people who are infected never even show any signs or symptoms. So if you don't have people like that anymore because of improved sanitation, but you also don't have a vaccine program, you've got a virgin population that a, a virus can just run rampant in. And that's Sounds what's, familiar. That it does. That's what started happening in the, the early 20th century, and it started scaring the bejesus out of parents because it was largely affecting kids. Yeah, and it happened in clusters um, because it was so easily transmitted. And like you said, with the virgin population, there would be these big outbreaks. Mm -hmm. And that causes panic uh, with parents especially. Yeah. Um, In 1916 in the U.S., 6,000 people died from polio uh, and about 27,000 paralytic cases. Um, 1952, 21,000 paralytic cases. And also, and, Chuck, we said in our in our book, you remember, in the Mr. Potato Head chapter, that polio outbreak is what made Mr. Potato Head one of the big, the first big toys. Right. Because so many kids were, were stuck at home that summer mm-hmm. because of a polio outbreak. That's right. And that that's exactly what happened because, you know, kind of mirroring what we're seeing now is they would shut down parks and swimming pools and schools and public events. Um, and America rallied behind it back then and said, yeah, that's what we should do for the good of the public. Um, it's not happening now, unfortunately, but uh, back then everyone got on board um, between, I think, a quarter of a million and 650,000 Americans um, were alive at any given time in the 20th century that had lifelong uh, issues caused by polio. Right. That's a lot of people. I mean, that's a real problem, you know? That's yeah. not over the 20th century. That's at any given point in the 20th century, right? Yeah, at any given point. So you can kind of understand why around then, you know, especially when, when people were seeing entire classrooms of children struck down, you know, with polio, some of whom, you know, went on to have lifelong uh, mobility issues, some of whom died. Um, that that was, that scared parents a lot and it scared everybody so much so that it it kind of laid the groundwork for this big national and actually an international push toward coming up with if not a treatment which they tried at first and and found that was not happening then a vaccine for polio and and that's exactly what we did we being humans yeah (laughs) Uh, and a big driver for this vaccine was uh, a little organization called the march of dimes which was originally founded uh, 1938 by Franklin Roosevelt. It's called the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. And I never knew this, but they had a march and people would send dimes as donations to the organization. And that's why it's called the March of Dimes. Right. It's amazing. And because of that, because of all those individuals sending in dimes to the March of Dimes or to the um, the uh, Infantile Paralysis Foundation, um, 
the, the, that laid the groundwork for the, the financial support for all of this research that was going on, specifically for the research of one of the guys who came up with a vaccine for polio, because we actually have more than one. Um, but the, the most famous of them all was Jonas Salk, who came into the picture in about 1947. And because of those dimes that were contributed by average everyday people, because those that money directly funded his research, he very famously f- refused to patent the um the the vaccine that he came up with for polio and just said this belongs to the world. Yeah, just like a farmer bro. Same exactly. Same morals, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um so this is a good chance. I'm glad when we get to do shows like this because um Jonas Salt gets uh, so much credit and deservedly so as a genuinely great human that walked the planet. Um but there a lot of people had uh, chipped in over the years to get this vaccine where it was. And we get a chance to talk about those people now, which is always fun. Um, in the 1940s, uh, late 1940s, John Franklin Enders, Thomas Huckle Weller, and Frederick Chapman Robbins. All three serial killers. <laughs> that's right. They figured out how to grow the polio virus culture in a lab, which if you want a vaccine, that's the first big step is to grow that culture in a lab. Mm-hmm. And they won in 1954 for those efforts. Uh, they won the Nobel Prize in medicine, which is great. Yeah, it was. Um, so the the first – that was a huge first step like you were saying. The people had tried to create a, a, a vaccine even before that first step though. Uh, I guess the old-fashioned way. Um, Brody and Colmer, John Colmer, I don't know Brody's first name, but they, when they were working together, um, they created a, a vaccine that actually killed uh, five of their 10,000 test subjects, which was not, um, it wasn't good. Uh, and it actually kind of <laughs> set the whole, the whole vaccine um, movement back a hint, but astoundingly, it didn't kill it. And it, rather than saying like, no, we're not going to try this, People looked at polio cases and said, this is so bad, we need to keep pushing forward despite that. And so um, by the time Salk came along and started working on his um, vaccine, you know, people were already a little jumpy about the idea. Um, And it was made all the more so that he was trying uh, an unproven form of vaccine, whereas most vaccines used um, attenuated virus, which is, it's live, but it's a weakened version of the virus, and it's in a um, it's it's in a much smaller dose. What what uh, Salk was suggesting, what he wanted to use, was a uh, an inactivated virus, which is it's dead in the in the sense that it can't replicate any longer. It's been treated with formaldehyde, but yeah, it, it's it's a huge dose of it. So if it's not dead, you're in big trouble. Yeah, and it was a big deal at the time because it was new science. And a lot of scientists said that I don't think you could administer this much, even uh, killed a virus, safely. Mm-hmm. And so what you had was a couple of different things going on, a couple of potential pathways to take, was give a little bit of that weakened virus that's still alive to kids, which we know is going to infect them with a the virus, so it's going to generate those antibodies, mm-hmm. but hopefully it's not going to be strong enough to get to that central nervous system point of infection. Right. Or 
super dose them with this inactive virus, and that's going to cause antibodies in the blood. So that will 100% prevent polio from happening. That will keep it from going to the central nervous system. They knew that. Right. Uh, and that's great news, but boy, you better be sure that that virus is perfect because not, if it's not, then you're in big trouble. Right. And not only, not only that, that's, that's a big risk with it. But if you do it right, it, the risk goes very close to zero. The other problem with it is because it produces antibodies in the bloodstream, that leaves out the gut, which means that you could still be infected by polio and colonize your gut and replicate and be passed in your feces. But because you have those antibodies in your, in your bloodstream, it's going to protect you from ever developing poliomyelitis. Yeah, they were trying to stop the disease, not stop the virus. Right. Well, it depends on the paradigm. Like the one that right, actually yeah, exactly. infects you with polio is going to pre- pre- prevent the, the any polio virus from ever colonizing your gut ever again. Um, so it depends on which approach you were, you're coming from. And over the course of some, you know, a couple of decades, both came into use enough around the world that we actually have come close to eradicating polio thanks to this combination of both of them. Yeah, so Salk um, developed a two-part test uh, that he used on himself and volunteers. And then in 1954, uh, you had to, you know, this was, you had to get a massive PR campaign behind this, like uh, in a big way, because they had to vaccinate a million children uh, they were called the polio pioneers, and even though it was, even though it looked good, it's still a big deal to vaccinate a million kids with this new vaccine that you're not quite sure about yet. But yeah. they figured just that was their only choice. Mm-hmm. They were like, we can't just let polio continue to thrive and paralyze and kill our children. We have to take a chance with these pioneers, right? So. So during this polio pioneer um, experiment, um, it was actually, from what I saw, the first double blind in a major public health study. So no one knew whether they were getting the placebo or not, uh, or getting the vaccine. But one segment of um, this group of polio pioneers, 200,000 of them, were given uh, a vaccine with, uh, that wasn't inactivated. So it was a huge dose of still-alive polio vaccine. And 40,000 of those 200,000 people came down with polio. 200 of them uh, were kids who developed paralysis, and 10 died. And this was huge, huge. Like, can you imagine a setback like that, where 200,000 kids were given a, a vaccine that hadn't been done properly? Like, that would just stop it in its tracks now. But again, because polio was so bad, America at the time was feeling very utilitarian and said, you know, 200 kids developing paralysis is horrible. But without this vaccine, um, you know, in 1952, 27,000 had developed paralysis. So again, they still pushed forward, even with the government temporarily suspending vaccination programs or this this test, I believe. Um, American parents still move forward and vaccinated their kids anyway with this this SALK, um, what came to be known the IPV or um, inactive polio virus that that SALK developed. That's right. the The inactivated polio virus vaccine, right, which is still around today, 
uh, and again, doesn't prevent the the, the infection, um, but it does prevent the bloodstream from moving it on to the central nervous system. Right. Which is, so, that's poliomyelitis. That's, again, what people mean when they say polio. That's right. Should we take another break and talk about the other vaccine? Yes. All right. We'll be right back to talk about the cheaper vaccine right after this. Want to learn about a pterosaur and call it pterodactyl? How to take a perfect movement all about fractals. Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, the Lizzie Borden murders and the cannibal runs. Don't explain everything to your brain. Explodes. Just Chuck and Josh. This stuff you should know. Word up, Jerry. All right, so there's another guy who is somewhat famous, but not nearly as famous as Jonas Salk. Um, Salk, he announced his findings on CBS radio um, and became like a household name overnight. Uh, I think America was kind of smitten with him because he had tested the vaccine on himself, his wife, his three sons, sterilizing his his syringes in his own kitchen. Um and he was very much derided by his main rival, a guy named Albert Sabin, or Sabin. I'm not sure which way you pronounce it. I don't think it matters at this point. Sabine? Um, ooh, that's a good one. Let's go with Sabine. So Albert Sabine, um, he came up with what we were talking about, the other kind of uh, vaccine, an attenuated virus that had a lot of advantages over um, Salk's virus, or Salk's vaccine, um, but because Salk had kind of beaten him to the punch in America, Sabine was was um, forced to kind of go outside of the United States to test his his vaccine, and he ended up testing his in the uh, USSR, I believe. Yeah, and like you said, his was attenuated, so it was live, and it was actually a really infectious strain. But something about the strain, it just seemed to not go to that central nervous system and infect the central nervous system nearly as much. Right. So uh, he went to the Soviet Union, uh, tested more than 10 million people there in the 1950s, and they said, uh, whatever Russian is for thumbs up, way to go. (laughs) (laughs) Great ski. Great job, great ski. Uh, And it was widely used and came into the U.S. in the 1960s. So then all of a sudden we have two vaccines. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got the IPV that you have to inject. Um, it, it, at first the, they thought it was had to be boosted every few years, but it was, in fact, a forever injection. The best kind. <laughs> right. Um, there were, it was very safe. There were no systemic reactions. Um, the cost was high. Uh, which was kind of a problem at the time, right. uh, as opposed to the lower cost of the OPV, which was oral, and you gave it on sugar cubes. Um, right. So there's a lot of advantages with this OPV over the IPV. And as a result, between the advantages, I mean, just lower cost alone would make public health officials be like, well, we should go with that. But that whole um, the cutter incident where 200,000 kids were accidentally given uh, active polio, um, that that really kind of shook people in Salk's vaccine enough that his vaccine got supplanted by Sabine's OPV, oral poliovirus vaccine. Um, and that became the standard 
in the United States from about the early 60s up to, I guess, 2000, basically, right? Yeah, and I think we failed to mention there were three types, three serotypes, type oh, yeah, 1, type 2, and type 3. And the mm-hmm. OPV, you could get all three of those types onto that one sugar cube, right? Uh, which is great. And if you have... Uh, if you're infected by one of those serotypes, it doesn't give you antibodies against the other two. Right. And a vaccine for one doesn't protect against the other two. So you have to get uh, inoculated against all three. And and Sabine, remember, he found a strain of uh, polio virus that was very infectious but didn't attack the central nervous system very, very much. And he actually identified strains for each one of those types that kind of fell into that category. But the thing is this, remember we said that with an um, with a activated or an attenuated live virus, you are actually being given polio virus and you are being infected with polio virus. And so that means that you can actually, you are shedding polio virus in your feces. So let's say you want to start a vaccination campaign in an area that has poor sanitation and a lot of um, resistance to a vaccine campaign. Well, if you can just get in there and vaccinate a few people, they're going to go and shed that polio virus in their feces. And because it's this weakened strain, um, that weakened strain will go on and infect other people in the community who drink this tainted drinking water. And they will kind of become what's known as passively vaccinated by this. So it was another advantage in developing areas as well. But there were some major problems with this this vaccine and still remain today, um, mainly because this is a live virus that you're being being infected with on purpose. Yeah, and because it's live, uh, even though it's weak, very, and, you know, I don't know about the word rare, but in very few cases, uh, and they think immunodeficiency had a lot to do with it. You could contract polio, you could get the paralysis, and you could possibly die. Uh, that was known as VAP, uh, vaccine-associated paralytic poliomyelitis, and that's <laughs> no good. Even if there are very few cases, that's not great for your PR campaign. But not only that, because it was a live virus that could still replicate, they also found that. When it entered your gut and colonized there, sometimes it could undergo a type of mutation so that what came out the other end in your feces was actually a, a basically a new version of the the strain that you had been given. And sometimes it was way more infectious. Sometimes it was way more deadly. And that would be what you pooped out into the local water supply. And at first, again, compared to like the wild strains of the three types of polio virus that were out there in the world, um, at first, like, it didn't matter. Like, that happened infrequently enough that that just keep going with this oral vaccine because it's really, really working. Um, but as it became more and more effective and fewer and fewer people had polio, the idea that you were giving them a vaccine that could actually produce a virulent strain became a real problem. And as a result, people said, well, wait a minute, we need to figure out what to do about this vaccine because we really need to start figuring out how to phase this out. That's right. Um, And is this where the Dutch enter the picture? I believe so. Yeah, and you might think, what do they have to do with it? They were (laughs) uh, studying Salk's IPV this whole time. Uh, They were using it. They were researching it. uh, They were funded by their own government to do so. And they made it more more robust, basically, against all three types, which is great. 
And the big thing they did, though, is they they found out how to reduce the cost because the cost was one of the big drawbacks of Salk's version. Um, and one of the big parts of the cost, very sadly, is is they had to import 5,000 rhesus monkeys every year uh, in the Netherlands alone. 5,000 right. monkeys in just the Netherlands. So in the 70s, uh, these two people named Paul van Hemert and Anton van Wiesel, uh, <laughs> they figured out how to grow cultured monkey kidney cells, which is a great record title, I think. Oh, I think so, too. I hadn't thought about that. I don't know the band. The band is the Plastic Beads. Okay. <laughs> and their new album, Cultured Monkey Kidney Cell? Mm-hmm. So they figured out how to grow these on plastic beads in steel flasks. Okay. And then grow that polio virus on the kidney cells. So all of a sudden, you didn't need 5,000 rhesus monkeys. You just needed a few of them. And you didn't have to spend, A, you didn't have to kill all those monkeys, which is awesome. Yeah. And B, you didn't have to import all those monkeys and that expense. And that was that saved a ton of money. And they could all of a sudden pump out these uh, IPV, uh, IPV shots at a mm. really reduced rate. All right. So now all of a sudden, Salk's original or actually new improved version of Salk's original vaccine is is competitive to the OPV price-wise. I think it's still way more expensive, but but much less way more expensive than it was before. But then also, like, it pre- prevents poliomyelitis from happening. So what public health officials started to realize, they, by the way, the U.S. started to switch back to the Salk vaccine, the IPV, in 2000. Yeah. And what, what public health officials realized is that this combination of the two could actually wipe polio out of existence. For one, you could prevent poliomyelitis from ever happening in your population with the IPV. But then also, if you could knock out polio in the wild with the OPV and and keep the, the population that you're inoculating from developing these um, vaccine-associated um, viruses, right, the, the mutated viruses that can come out the other end, you could actually wipe polio out of the wild. And as a matter of fact, one type of polio, uh, I believe it was type 2, um, was eradicated. They figured out sometime around 1999, and then I believe in 2015, they officially declared type 2 polio virus eradicated. It's just gone. That, that it's just not in the wild anymore. Um, because it died out because it couldn't find a host uh, to transmit and replicate, and we killed it. We got rid of it. From poop, though. That's right. Like, that's literally in 1999, the last polio dump happened. Yeah, it is kind of crazy because you do, at least in the United States, you associate polio with, like, the the early 20th century, you know? Yeah, so the last polio poop came out. Didn't hook up with anyone that didn't have immunity. And the good news about type 2 going away was, remember how we were talking about the VAP, the the VAPP uh, situation with the OPV? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's getting confusing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, type 2 was the part most likely to cause that vaccine uh, infection, that vaccine-derived infection. So with that out of the way, you were just left with the OPV for types 1 and 3, which is way more safe and effective. Right. And I saw that type 3 had actually been declared eradicated as well. Um, I think that it's made some sort of weird comeback in Nigeria, but that um, 
I believe it was declared eradicated in 2019. I'm not sure if they doubled back on that or not. But either way, there does seem to be this idea that we could, and we're right there, um, on the cusp of being able to eradicate polio. And there's a difference between eradicate and eliminate. Eradicate is where there's zero cases to where the only polio that exists is like in a lab or in vaccinated form. Um, eliminate is where it just doesn't exist on Earth anymore. And for all we know, type 2 polio virus has been um, eliminated. Uh, but type 3 <laughs> and type 1 right, has been or are close to being eradicated. For example, for all types of polio... In 1988, not not very long ago, in 1988, there were 350,000 cases worldwide still. So there's still a lot of polio. In 2017, it was down to 22, 22 worldwide. So we're making like great headway. But unfortunately, the CIA seems to have really gotten in the way and set uh, polio eradication back by decades from what I've read. Oh, yeah? Yes. Did you see that Scientific American article I sent? I didn't get to that. Okay. Tell us about it. So when, when the, um, the U.S. was hunting for Osama bin Laden, one of the ways that they tried to find him was through a fake vaccination campaign. And it wasn't for polio. It was for hepatitis C. But they basically got a public health official to mount a fake vaccination campaign to gain entry to the um, bin Laden compound or suspected bin Laden compound and basically take DNA samples of the children there while they were um, vaccinating them. And they, they I guess that they didn't happen. It didn't, um, it, it wasn't successful. I, I, don't, I don't remember how they found out he was in there or not. But the, um, the fact that the word got out that this fake vaccination campaign have been used as a ruse by the CIA, completely undermined all other vaccination campaigns around the world in places that were already wary of the CIA. Because remember, polio is endemic in three places, Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. And none of those three places really have a great impression of the CIA. So legitimate um, public health uh, vaccination campaigns in those countries were totally delegitimized in the eyes of the local population and the local governments. And in fact, some vaccination workers were murdered um, and kicked out of countries directly because of that that ruse that the CIA had undertaken. And from what I read, they say that it set this eradication campaign for polio back literally decades because it is built around public trust that these scientists who are injecting them with stuff. These American scientists are, are trustworthy. Um, and and that, that trust has been lost, sadly. Wow. Isn't that nuts that that, yeah. that it can have that kind of ripple effects like that? And now we're going to have to live with polio at least another 20 years, probably? Sad. It is sad. Polio sad. You got anything else? I got nothing else. Well, that's it for polio, everybody. Soon, that's it for polio. Uh, and since I said that, it's time for listener mail, I think, right? Yeah, I'm going to call this, oh, just correcting us on some stuff. How about that? Okay. Uh, sorry, guys, I'm a bit behind. So this uh, is somewhat old news, but since it involves the Byzantine Empire, perhaps old is relative. In the Stuff You Should Know episode, How Flamethrowers Work, Josh says, uh, in reference to the Greek fire... Something like the Byzantines 
who we know as Turks, were most notorious for using the stuff. I didn't say that. <laughs> he said you said it at 531. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds made up. That's a made up timestamp. Uh, the Byzantines were not Turks in the sense that white Afrikaners in South Africa are not Zulus. The Byzantines were Greek-speaking colonists from the Roman Empire. The capital of the Roman Empire was moved to Byzantium in 338 AD by Constantine the Great. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the strategic port uh, was duly christened and Christianized for a while, at least, as Constantinople. Yeah, not Uh, Istanbul. The uh, Byzantines were, much as the Afrikaners were with the Zulus, at odds with the indigenous Turks for most of their history until they were overthrown by the latter in the mid-15th century. The name Constantinople was changed officially to Istanbul in 1930, uh, but had been in use by the non-Greek-speaking natives there for centuries, even before the city fell to the Turks in 1453. Uh, Why the heirs of the Roman Empire spoke Greek rather than Latin is similar to why modern South Africans speak English mostly rather than Afrikaans. There's probably a couple of whole shows you could do about the convoluted colonial histories touched on above. And that is from Conrad Berube. Thanks, Conrad. I appreciate it. I still dispute that I said anything as ridiculous as what you say I said, but uh, (laughs) regardless, I'm glad it resulted in that top-notch email. Uh, If you want to be like Conrad and send us a top-notch email, you can do that. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.